creatures. Banzai. It's almost like once you start doing it, I you almost have to. Like it, it's, yeah. it's He takes his hand and grabs his hat on top of his head while he's looking at it. The Black Pondo Podcast. You can ask me anything, I'll I'll talk about whatever. <laughs> nice. Okay. Would you give me maybe just like a, a brief little background on yourself uh would love to kind of know non-bonsai related first <laughs> uh i grew up in uh boonville california in mendocino county and um you know it, like a couple of different places when i was like a kindergartner or whatever i was actually living on a giant ranch slash vineyard property and my parents were the caretakers so there were there were a lot of hippies around and I never saw the guy who actually owned the property, but uh, I was running all over the hills and uh, going under oak trees and finding rattlesnakes and turning over old garbage dumps and, you know, that kind of stuff. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, Boonville was pretty rural upbringing. And then after I graduated from high school, I went to Ithaca, New York to go to college for four years stayed there for six years, actually, a couple of years after I graduated and uh, met my wife in college. And then we, we kind of road tripped back out here and I lived up at my parents' house for a couple months before we moved into the city. And we were in the city from, let's see, 2001 to 2010, moved to Thousand Oaks down in Ventura County for about two years. 2010 to 2012 and then late 2012 we moved back into the same place in the city because both of us didn't really like uh, southern california weather (laughs) yeah i remember when you moved down there and also i know you had issues growing your bonsai with water quality and things like that it was definitely a crash course in how what is going on and how do I do this? Because you know, I think anyone who grows trees, you know, the whole thing with margin burn, you know, starting with whatever kind of maple you have and going into lots of other species, you're just like, what's going on? It must be the wind or it must be the heat or something like that. And so the water was really sort of like guess number 10 on my list. Um, but then once I figured out that was the principal cause, uh, it was, it was interesting to to go through the kind of odyssey of like I was listening to you and Julian talk about the ROs in one of your previous episodes and just thinking to myself like yeah they are so lucky to have him down there now actually paying attention to RO and and telling them this is your biggest problem because it took me about a year to figure it out and my trees really suffered during that time but the flip side was that once I did figure it out. And once I started using the RO, I was gravity feeding. So I was listening to you guys talking about the pumps and uh, thinking to myself, I should have bought one. But um, once I started using the RO and then supplementing, I was using Dynagro at a uh, pretty dilute rate. And I was just gravity feeding out of a 50 gallon barrel uh, because my, that my house was on a hill. 
and there's <laughs> like barely a trickle coming out of the hose, even though the bonsai were all, all the way at the bottom of the hill and the water, the water barrel was at the top. But uh, even though it's like a hot, dry winds down there sometimes, oh my God, the deciduous trees just took off. Like they just start growing like a rocket. So it, it was incredible. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So when you started using the RO, you, you definitely saw results, especially with deciduous. Is that correct? I mean, everything got healthier, but it was night and day with the deciduous and not just deciduous. I think a lot of the broadleaf evergreens, um, maybe, you know, the non-traditional broadleaf evergreens. So, you know, in Southern California, you see a lot of cork oaks and olives and that kind of thing. And they seem to, they're very salt tolerant, but for willowleaf ficus, for example, like I got some cuttings of willowleaf ficus when I was at a workshop with Boone one time and he handed them to me and he's like, here, just, you know, try growing these. And they weren't really, they weren't really growing very well with the water down there, which I was surprised because a lot of the other guys down there in the area were actually growing willowleaf ficus. Uh, but once I, once I changed the water out, those just took off and it was kind of the same thing for everything else. So, yeah, I mean, it was, if anyone who's in Los Angeles or anywhere where the water is bad, I mean, if your TDS reads at 300 or above, I just go, I would just say, go straight for the RO. Yeah. Well, that's, I'm, I'm glad that you say that. And it's cool to hear Julian also talk about that. And I completely agree with you. I think SoCal is very lucky to have Julian down there now paying attention to RO water and, and just the uh, overall wa water quality within Southern California and the Los Angeles area. I think it's such an important thing. I've found uh, really drastic improvements in my tree switching over to RO. Definitely recommend a sub pump. That's uh, funny that you were gravity feeding. <laughs> it was a mess. It was a mess. <laughs> <laughs> but very cool. Very cool. Awesome. So tell me a little bit about um, your other, like uh, anything outside of bonsai. What, do you, what are you into outside of bonsai? I want to talk a lot, of, a lot about trees, but also just want to get to know you just a, a little bit more. Well, I mean... I got a bachelor's degree in chemistry and before I was done, I had gone to, I had worked in a lab, uh, as an undergraduate for a summer and then a, the fall semester following and decided that I didn't want to be a chemist because every, all the professors in the chemistry building were bald. And I figured that that had something to do with the chemicals. <laughs> okay. uh, nice. Here I find here I find myself working with chemicals again as a as a bonsai grower. But uh, but you know I you know I what I I gave up chemistry and started to do photography, and I was really interested in doing something that was artistic. And in retrospect, I really think that I was you know I was one of the top people in my high school class. And I think that the, you know, my parents and the teachers and whatnot were pushing me to do something academic. And, uh, it really dawned on me after I got out of college that I was much more interested in creating things than in doing math or, you know, trying to figure out chemistry problems or whatever, 
or English or anything like that, or even business kind of stuff just didn't really interest me. Uh, so I was doing a little bit of this, a little bit of that, like woodworking and um, loved going hiking and looking at trees. So ever since I was a kid, uh, my my family has owned a cabin uh, up in Pinecrest Lake, which is kind of north of Yosemite, but south of Lake Tahoe. And, and so every summer I would go up there. And when I got, after I got back from college, I started doing a lot of hiking into the emigrant wilderness, which is right adjacent to the back country of Yosemite and was just completely blown away by some of the trees up there. And simultaneously, after I moved to San Francisco, I was living in a, I was living in a little apartment uh, at the end of Harrison street in, you know, just south of the Mission District, and and we actually had a lot of space for you know your typical city apartment, but I for whatever reason I thought to myself that I didn't have enough space to really do much, so I would I would get into bonsai because I figured that didn't take too much space because it was small. And <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> I, th- I think I think you and I both know that that's a bit of a mistake at this point, but uh, I mean, maybe if you just have a couple of trees. And then I went to the, I think it was the 2000, spring 2002 San Francisco Flower Garden Show, which at the time was at the Cow Palace. And they had uh, the, the Bonsai Society of San Francisco was putting on the bonsai exhibit there. And I remember before that point, I really thought of bonsai as kind of like a ship in a bottle where you're you're trying to create a replica of something in miniature and you're you're trying to be as true to the replica as possible and i just didn't really think that was very interesting and so when i went to that show i walked into the room and i was like hold on wait these are miniature trees and tim kong who longtime redwood collector coast live oak collector olive collector um here in california he had been kind of the one of the teachers at the San Francisco group for a long time. And this was apparently after Boone and Morton left the San Francisco group because they predated him, but he had a collected redwood. I don't think I can do it justice in, in a, in a words only description because it was as if you had taken a, a, a redwood tree that was about maybe 18 inch diameter and you had ripped a branch that was just like a foot above the base off along with like about a foot wide piece of bark that was about two feet tall and turned that into a bonsai. So it was like this weird kind of hollowed out, not even semi-circular, but like sort of like a quarter or less of a circle with like a little redwood tree on the top of it. And I'm looking at this thing like, wait, is this even real? And, and it was real. I, he still has it actually. And, uh, I think that was the that was the tree that just like blew my mind and made me realize that uh, bonsai wasn't really like a miniature replica of something. It was really more like a sculptural interpretation of a tree. Wow, that's deep. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I like that a lot. I've never thought about bonsai being kind of like a ship in a a bottle, and I do feel like sometimes. I mean, we there's elements that are definitely where we're creating a dwarf tree or trying to create a a dwarf tree, but absolutely there are 
many different sculptural elements of things. I think there's an element of fiction when it comes to bonsai. And uh, it's a complicated thing that I, I think we are doing. And I don't think there's a right answer. It's, it's not, it's like both a ship in a bottle and sculpture and, and all these other things. I feel like it, it can be complex and it can also be whatever you want it to be. And, and there are several right answers. Yeah. I mean, I think you and I actually originally interacted on Bonsai Nut before uh, before you joined Boone's group. And I remember because of my sort of, I was only a few years ahead of you in terms of exploring things, but um, just my interest in having other people go up into the mountains and actually look at the trees, like in, from a perspective of like, not necessarily just like, oh, there's like a mangled tree or whatever, but a, as inspiration for, for making bonsai, and uh, so I, I remember interacting with you and you're like looking for collecting spots or something like that. <laughs> yeah, actually, that that brings up a point. Yeah, I I think I owe a lot of of uh, success within collecting to you because I did. I remember <laughs> connecting with you on Bonsai Nut and, and writing some post about like I would do pretty much anything to go on like a legitimate collecting trip up in the mountains and you responded, and I probably shouldn't be talking about this because I don't want you to get blown up right now by a uh, hundred people trying to get information on how to get permits. But you basically walked me through the process on how to get permits in a in an area, and I went I, I went forward with that and went collecting there. And long story short, thank you so much for that. I really really appreciate it, and uh, I think you really kind of helped me to uh to get started within collecting so thank you for that really appreciate it yeah my pleasure i the funny thing is i'm actually not much of a collector i i very much prefer to be out there kind of enjoying the beauty of the plants and then when it comes to when it comes to sticking a shovel in the dirt i'm just like yeah the hike was really nice but i'm just not really sure that i want to dig this up even though it's really gorgeous yeah Totally. Totally. Cool. Well, so I'm curious, Eric, now with the Pacific Bonsai Expo, the first one all wrapped up, what's your time look like these days in terms of tree time, like, like bonsai time specifically, and then bonsai related time? How's that look these days? How's it divided up? So, I mean, anyone who's listening that doesn't know, I'm now a full-time professional and, but my, I think, you know, the emphasis of what I do is significantly different than what a lot of the professionals that came back from Japan are doing. So I spend some time working on client trees, people that are here in San Francisco or nearby, I tend to be a little bit selective about who I take as clients because the rewarding part for me is to see a tree get to show condition. So in order for me to be happy about working with clients, they have to be able to both sort of keep a tree healthy and, and wrestle me out of my, my rut in my garage or whatever it is to remind me that they need their trees to be worked on. It's kind of, it's kind of a funny thing. So I spend some time working, working with clients. I do one workshop a month with 
with students uh, here at my house in the city. And then I spend a ton of time running my business, which is basically, at the moment anyway, creating starters and, and shipping them all over the U.S. I do a lot of black pines, a lot of junipers, a variety of other species in lower volumes, but I tend to spend a fair amount of time. It's funny because we do almost all of our own propagation. And I got into propagation while I was studying with Boone. And initially it was like, oh, I, I can't find anyone who will sell me Kishu that are actually healthy. You can go to a, a club show or something like that and buy a plant, but then it'll take you three years just to get it to get it healthy enough to propagate from it or something like that. So I spent a lot of time doing propagation work and that entails both like literally propagating, like you're taking cuttings from a juniper and, and sticking them and in a flat, uh, dipping them in rooting hormone and that kind of thing, or potting up young plants out of common flats and two inch, all that really boring stuff that everybody is like, I don't want to do this so they don't do it and then nobody in the in the bonsai community has material to sell so i i really think of myself as 80 to 90 percent a nursery operator because at this point when i look around and i think about it's funny because jonah says a lot that like what are the problems that need to be solved in order for bonsai in the u.s to be to kind of progress and from my perspective, in the when I started bonsai, there were more nurseries out there. There were more people who were propagating material and doing a good enough job of growing trunks that you could actually buy it. And I feel like those nurseries are actually kind of, they've been disappearing. So because I really enjoy propagation and because I really enjoy growing things, creating trunks from scratch, that's sort of what I spend a lot of my time doing. So I have about, I don't know, I probably have about 30 or 40,000 trees. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's kind of nuts. I mean, a lot of those are, you know, like they're seedlings or whatever, but, um, but we, we propagate and, and do a lot of stuff. So I have one full-time employee and I, then I do kind of like a lot of the other stuff, whether it's, you know, fixing the website or, well, I, I mean, I have a YouTube channel that I do and I was doing like two, two videos a week and I've backed off on that doing more like one a week now because I started spending a lot more time editing them. So it's a mix of, of crazy stuff. I feel like I, I, I kind of, I kind of work too much. Probably I get up at like five o'clock in the morning and I work probably from 6 a.m. until 6 p.m. seven days a week. And when you listen to like Adam talk about the uh, the apprentice life in, in Japan, that doesn't even compare. But I, I feel like I'm making progress. We've been at it for uh, since September of 2019, so about three and a half years. And it's a long road. It's, it's kind of crazy. And we're actually... Like it's all, it's, it's never the same thing twice. So like, even though I'm propagating the same species and I'm doing like all this kind of stuff. So I, 
just the other day, I was out at the out at the growing grounds that I have, and because I mean, for those of you who don't know, I live in San Francisco in a house in Bernal Heights, and I have about six hundred square feet of outdoor space where I've always kept my my personal bonsai collection. So when I decided to to start a business to grow bonsai from scratch, the first thing on the agenda was to get some more get some more space, some more sun, a little bit more more warmth. So I have a piece of property in the East Bay that's about it's about half an acre. That's where the majority of those trees are. So I was out there the other day and realized that I hadn't hadn't had the opportunity to really work with like three or I guess I should say fourth year junipers that I had propagated from scratch before. So each time I go through like a year of working with these plants, they get a little bit bigger, they get a little bit more complicated. And so it's every year, it's something a little bit different. Before we forget, would you tell everybody the different places they can find you? Cause there's, there's a few different spots. The business name is Bonsify, Bonsai with an FY on the end. And so it's bonsify.com. And if you're on YouTube, we I post videos there on a regular basis. You can just search for Bonsify on YouTube. And then we have an Instagram channel and a Facebook account page. I don't know. I don't really deal with Facebook. My wife does all of it for me. But yeah. And then we actually, well... I think those are the main places you can find me. I'm doing a program for, well, I do programs for the clubs in the Bay Area on a pretty regular basis. So in June, I'm doing a talk uh, at the San Francisco group, actually doing a critique of some of the some of the trees from the Pacific Bonsai Expo, which I think the BSOP Bonsai Society of Portland and BSSF, the San Francisco group, tied for the number, this, the most exhibitors from any given club. I think there were seven from BSSF and seven from BSOP. Oh, that's interesting. And, and that's fun. I didn't know you guys were tracking those numbers from different clubs. It would be cool to, uh, to see that continue and, and maybe get, have clubs get a little bit competitive just for fun. Nothing too serious, but, uh, I like that idea. I think, you know, part of it is probably just that, with Jonas and I being local to the Bay Area and me having been involved with the San Francisco San Francisco group for so long. And then Andrew Robson was really one of the champions for the show from Portland. That it's almost like the proximity to the organizers is is more important than anything else. I think maybe sure. that's to, that's discounting all the hard work that went into the trees. So I shouldn't say that. But uh, but yeah, it was it was kind of interesting. Totally. Makes total sense. I could see uh, the Portland club maybe maybe uh, being competitive in, in that category, though. For sure. Nice. Well, hey, you know, going back to what you were talking about with Jonas saying, what does the bonsai community need in order to grow and improve? I just want to give you just a massive shout out. Jonas as well. But I feel like everything that you do is directed in terms of making the bonsai community better and grow within the U S. And I think that's very cool and very important. 
I mean, the Pacific Bonsai Expo was such a massive undertaking and such an, I mean, like it went so good. <laughs> I thought from my, from my perspective, it, it was so incredible. I loved it so much. I just thought it was so awesome. Just want to give you a massive shout out for that. But you also, and Jonas and Jonas and your wife, all incredible. And without any of you guys, it would not have happened. And so great work on that. But also, you know, the bonsai videos that you post, they're free for people to go see on YouTube right now. It's a fantastic resource for people to elevate their bonsai game. And I just think, and then also with your business, basically you're doing exactly what we need, which is to produce these types of trees that are very hard to find. Like there are certain types that I look for still and, it, and it's impossible. Like I was looking for Japanese beach the other day. You cannot find a Japanese beach for sale in the U.S. I feel like so hard, but yeah. massive shout out to you. Well, thank you. Uh, a lot of things to respond to there, but starting with the Japanese beach, I don't have any. <laughs> <laughs> I And in fact, beach is one of those things where I'm just like, I would really like to be growing more beach. And so I went looking and they're not easy to propagate because they're in the same family as oaks. And so like, if, you know, if you try to take cuttings from oaks, you're almost never going to succeed. And the same thing is true with beech. So then they have to be propagated by seed. Right. But it's not even that hard or it's not even that easy to find the seed first of all, but then I managed to propagate some of the atropurpurium variety of the, of the European beach and beautiful, absolutely beautiful trees. But the seed takes, I believe it was six months to stratify. So you have to wait six months to sow the seed in order to get it to germinate. And during that time, you have no idea whether or not the seed that you got was actually even viable. Jeez. So, so I think that, that there's some reasoning, there's some reasons why it's hard to find Japanese beach. And I've even, I can't remember who the last person I asked, but every time somebody's going to Japan, I'm just like, you know what? If you find any seed, just bring it back. I, I would love it. I'll pay you whatever it takes to get it into the country and just let me know what you want for it. Because we see that the species that are really easy to propagate are tend to be a little bit easier to find as a, as a bonsai grower. So if you want a Japanese black pine, most of the time, those, you know, because the seeds germinate without any stratification and generally are viable when you get them from commercial sources, it makes it a lot easier to, to propagate them. But the, there's a lot of other, you know, specific things that we want to grow in bonsai where it's actually not that easy to propagate them. And so it becomes this sort of it's a whole separate challenge, right? Like it, this isn't even bonsai. This is just propagation that is aimed at facilitating bonsai. And that's, that's what I was talking about earlier, where I just feel like some of these, these nursery guys that used to be around, you know, starting, I think as far back as the 1970s, before I was even born, there, there's this wave of people starting nurseries and they really got into propagating Japanese species because there was a, an uptick in interest in Japanese gardening as well. And now a lot of those nurseries are just gone. So. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you are there to fill in the void. 
it's a it's a big void to fill. I'm not sure that I'm going to fill the whole thing, but uh, I am giving it a shot for sure. Yeah, and I uh, I've kind of tried to get into a little bit of propagation myself more recently because I, I just feel like it is such a big void. Uh, for example, just watching your videos got me inspired to take some Itoagawa cuttings. And uh, so I, I, you know, I have a really nice variety that I got from Peter T. And so I, I took a bunch of cuttings off of that plant. And uh, I think, I think there's room for, for uh, a lot of people to propagate and help fill the void. I got to tell you, if I have 10 people contact me looking for something, it's probably six of them are looking for, for Itoigawa. <laughs> Totally. <laughs> it, and you know, the, the funny thing is like when I, <clears throat> when I went to propagate Kishu, because I actually prefer Kishu probably mostly because it, it does a little bit better in San Francisco than Itoigawa because of the, the cool temperatures in the summer. But when I went to propagate Kishu, I just kind of thought to myself like, wait, I need to make, so in the fall of 2019, I stuck about eight to 9,000 cuttings. It was about 120 flats of cuttings, like 17 inch Anderson flats. And if you think about that, where do you get the material? Like, where do you get that much foliage of Kishu? Because if you have one or two Kishu in your garden and maybe they're growing, you haven't trimmed them in a while, or maybe you have trimmed them, it's not even the right type of growth to, to stick. So I ended up buying, I think it was 30 plants from Brent Walston at Evergreen Garden Works to, to be the mother plants for those those cuttings that I wanted to to start. And he didn't have any Toigawa. And so it was just sort of like, I don't know where I'm going to get it. I have to have like these big giant plants in order to chop them up and make clones of them. And I finally, it was, wasn't until last summer that I went down to Ed Clark's place outside of, well, was it southeast of Fresno? And he had a bunch of bigger ones. So I bought a couple of those and started propagating them. That's great. That's great. Yeah, I feel like uh, I've I've been hit up several times about Ito Ogawa as well. Everyone everyone wants it and it is hard to get enough foliage and, and wood and cuttings. So uh that's great that you got some mother plants and you got to grow those things out. So you, every year, I feel like it just takes time growing those mother plants out or acquiring a bunch like you did. So nice work there. I took, I think I took like, I don't know, maybe like 1500 Itoigawa cuttings. <clears throat> so they're growing out right now, but now I have to go find more, more parent stock. Yeah. It's kind of nuts. <laughs> For sure. Cool. So while we're on the topic, I guess, do you have any tips for taking good juniper cuttings? You know, it's funny. I, when I did the, the batch in 2019, which accounts for probably more than half of the junipers that I have, uh, that I've propagated still, even though I've had another couple of seasons to work on it. <clears throat> I, uh, I did them in September. So like starting in early September and actually because I was doing so many, it took me until about the middle of October. And 
at the time I didn't have a greenhouse and I didn't have a growing grounds or anything like that. So I literally put a bunch of seedling heat mats out on my back deck on the north side of my house here in the city and just started setting them out there until I ran out of space on my deck and I couldn't use the deck anymore. <laughs> but, uh, but it, so the, the takeaway is that it was a, it was a September, October cutting with 8,000 PPM. So like a Hormax number eight, but a lot of rooting hormone, rooting hormones work. And if people want more detail on this, there's actually a really in-depth video that I did on, on YouTube that goes into a lot of the specifics about what the foliage should look like before you take the cutting, what the, what contributes to success in terms of the cuttings and also some tips for how to kind of speed things along. I think I spent over half an hour, even after the video was edited, talking about the, the various aspects of, of cut, doing juniper cuttings, because when I was a beginner, it was the same kind of thing. I, you know, I had someone tell me, yeah, just take some cuttings and stick them in some soil and then wrap them in a plastic bag and put them under your bench and they'll take. And the first couple of times I did it, I didn't get anything. So the rooting hormone helps, bottom heat helps. The funny thing was when I went to visit Ed Clark, I said, oh, when do you do the propagation? And he's like, I do it in June when it's as hot as I, it gets. And I keep them as wet as I can keep them. So he basically had them because he's down by in the central Valley, like basically near Bakersfield, it's a hundred plus degrees every day. Right? It's hot there. Yeah. And so he has shade cloth over most of his nursery, which makes complete sense because everything he's growing is in containers. But then underneath the shade cloth, he had a greenhouse with a misting system in the greenhouse to keep the humidity at 100% within the greenhouse. So it's like 100 degrees outside. You walk into the greenhouse, it's like 100% humidity. It feels like it's 130 degrees. I mean, it was ridiculously hot. <laughs> and you could see the whips like... So he was taking them in June and I think he had like two, three, four inches of growth on some of them before the fall came around. So heat, heat and humidity are the friend of uh, junipers. I think if you want to get them going. Nice. Nice. Very cool. Do you, uh, when it comes to rooting hormone, have you experimented with the gel very much? I've used Clonex, which is, I think I picked it up at a hydro shop. It's, it was, I think it was originally developed for cannabis cultivation. And I really haven't noticed any difference. I think that the, the main difference in rooting hormones is just the concentration of IBA, um, endobutyric acid, I think is what it is. And so the Hormax powders, which are available on Amazon, actually, in just like a little nice little size bottle, they come in, it's like number two, number four, number eight, number 16, or something like that. And each one of those is like, so number two is 2,000 parts per million, number eight is 8,000 parts per million. And so it's kind of an easy reference. If you just go to like a garden center, usually the rooting hormone, like a I think Rutone is one of one of the kind of consumer brands. The concentration of IBA seems to be too low for a lot of plants. So if you're, you know, taking cuttings of 
of basil or something like that, it would be fine. But for woody plants that we use in bonsai, it tends to not be quite as quite as effective. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I guess one thing in addition to the the strength of the actual hormone, I wonder about is like, is there a way to keep that on the cutting for a longer period of time? Because I feel like when you water, probably a decent amount washes off. And I'm not really sure if that matters all that much or not. But for example, if you're going to do an air layer, I saw Julian put either toilet paper or paper towel. <laughs> so basically like on the, on the top of the air layer where you remove the bark. So he, he would put rooting hormone on that top layer and then he would attach like paper towel or toilet paper. And I think that this, that they do this in Japan within certain nurseries as well. However, the idea would be just so that you can keep that rooting hormone on the area for a longer period of time. So when you're watering, hopefully it's not just washing off of that area. And I really don't know if that matters all that much or not, but just kind of an idea that I was thinking about. And with cuttings, I feel like usually when I do a cutting, I, I dip, stick it, but I put it into a pre-wet material. So pre-wet perlite, for example, right, just so yeah. that I don't have to water and then immediately it washes off. Yeah, I mean, the it's funny. There was a point at which all my trees were in Jonas's backyard because I was remodeling uh, my house and I had to get everything out of the backyard if it wasn't going to have two by fours thrown on top of it by the contractors. And during that time, Jonas was doing some Japanese black pine uh, seedling cuttings. And so that's the process of cutting off the taproot from the seedling after it germinates and then basically dipping it in rooting hormone and sticking it just like what you're talking about as if it was a cutting. And we started kind of messing around with it because all he had was, it's a liquid now, I'm going to forget the name, but it's kind of a consumer brand and neither of us had gotten very good results with it but it's a liquid and it's not like a gel. Uh, so you, you dilute it and then you, you're supposed to dip the, dip the cutting and stick it. So we played around with upping the concentration or lengthening the amount of time that the, that the seedling spent soaking in it. And it, the results were pretty clear that the best rooting came from the seedlings that were in like sort of soaking in that solution for the longest period of time. And I think he went up to like a half an hour as opposed to like, you know, two seconds or something like that. And the ones that were, that were in there for like a half an hour rooted, they just had more consistent radial rootage and in general were more vigorous than the ones that had been just quickly dipped and stuck. So you might be onto something there. Nice. Really appreciate that information. And it's, it's tough. We need more scientific studies within bonsai, but it, it just takes a lot of time and effort to do. So I, I do appreciate anytime Jonas does those or, or you do that or anybody and then talks about it or posts information on that. I think that's really important. The more the merrier.
Most definitely. <laughs> Both in, in bonsai growers and bonsai propagation. Absolutely. Cool. Well, would you tell me a little bit about your personal collection? Sure. So, I mean, it's funny when you're, when you become a professional, how it kind of affects your, your quote unquote personal collection, but maybe I'll take you through an arc of it. So when I first started out, I was trying to learn bonsai, but I only wanted to apply it to natives, which I think, you know, you kind of started maybe from that, from that perspective as well. So I was really interested in oak trees because that's what was there when I was growing up. And I was really interested in the, the native junipers and a number of other things. So maybe fire pine. So like the, the coastal pines, like Monterey pine, bishop pine, so on, knobcone pine. And so I, I started doing a lot of propagation because I didn't actually wasn't sure that I liked bonsai. So I built up my personal collection, starting with just some inexpensive material and seeing like, okay, well, you know, how, how is this going to work? And then ended up buying a few collected coast live oaks. So kind of one thing led to another. And for a while I had, and I still have a lot of like a, a pretty, like maybe 50, 50 mix of exotic species, meaning mostly Asian species and native species, meaning California or at least the Western half of the United States. So I think it's interesting because the prior to Ryan Neal coming back and, and really delving more with a lot more <laughs> depth into some of our native species, it seemed like there was a real lack of information out there and there still is to a certain extent, but, you know, Peter's doing a really good job with redwoods. And I think this is a really long winded uh, way of answering your question, but I have a couple of coast live oaks. I have a couple of valley oaks that I grew from acorns. I collected the acorns in Sacramento or Roseville, actually. I have a couple of Sierra junipers that I dug myself. That should sound pretty familiar to you. I <laughs> I have a couple of ponderosa pine, most likely collected by Randy Knight, uh, and I think one of the nicer one that was in the expo recently was one that I purchased from Boone about fifteen years ago. But I think he got it from Randy. And then I have some Western white pine, which is Pinus monticola. And one of those came from Oregon and one of those came from the Sierra Nevada. They look very different. It's funny. The, the one from Oregon has like a, almost like a blue stripe on the needle. There are five needle pines and I have a couple of redwoods, both actually one now both collected by Bob Scheiman, who was your first guest on this podcast, I think. Yeah. And uh, then I have, I, I had, a bunch of Japanese black pine that are now about 18 or 19 years old that I grew from seed. But when I became a full-time professional, what I realized was I need to have fewer trees that I have to take care of and 
I need to make money, so I need to sell a bunch of these trees. So I ended up selling all but two of that original batch of black pines. So I have a exposed root cascade Japanese black pine and a root over rock slant style Japanese black pine. I could go on, but <laughs> hopefully that gives you at least some idea of what the mix of like trees that are in my personal collection. Yeah, no, that that's fantastic. You're black pine that you've grown from seed are very inspiring to me. I love looking at those and seeing what you have grown. Love your redwoods. And I was very impressed with your Ponderosa that you had. I, I think you had it at Peter T's for a little while because I, I saw it over there at one point, right? Yeah. So I take some things because the winter in San Francisco is basically five degrees cooler than the summer i tend to take mountain pines up to his house to just sort of ensure a little bit better dormancy great great yeah i think that's very smart and makes a lot of sense and i think his place is perfect for that Um, but yeah i was very impressed with your ponderosa because of the size of the needle the number of needles that you had on the overall tree and the number of of buds and just just the ramification and the density, I was I was very impressed with that. <laughs> well, thank you. I, it's funny. I I don't it's I don't know exactly how to tell you like how I would tell you to replicate it because I think that there's a bunch of different factors at play, but among them are <clears throat> there seems to be a significant genetic variation among ponderosa pines. So in all of the hiking that I've done in the Sierra Nevada, I've never seen a ponderosa that I wanted to collect. And so all of the best ponderosa that I've seen, I think are coming out of the Rocky Mountains. And I think that the, the two that I have that I like are com- came from the Rocky Mountains. I don't actually know that. So, but the point being, I believe that the ones that are further east in the Rocky Mountains and Great Basin, that kind of those kind of areas, tend to have a shorter needle naturally. So that's one uh, one aspect of it. And as you know, when needles are smaller or shorter, it tends to sort of propagate into the branch structure, being able to be finer, which is a lot of what we do with tons of different species in bonsai. And then the San Francisco summer climate being so consistently mild, cool, apart from wacky heat waves every once in a while. I think that is a contributing factor in terms of keeping needles short and allowing the the tree to just not be super vigorous. It did take me a little while to get it kind of dialed in. And I think when it was at the expo, it looked about as good as it's ever looked. And what I had done in the kind of year and a half leading up to the expo, which I think you saw it in the winter prior to the expo, was to basically use the Japanese white pine technique in terms of watering. And so rather than watering it like once a day or once every other day, it would be every three days or every five days. 
and I didn't, I can't say that I really got that idea from someone in Japan because I think it was really having a conversation with Michael Hagedorn and Andrew Robson when Andrew was still a, an apprentice at Michael's garden and Andrew was nervous that Michael kept telling him to stop watering the ponderosas. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he was like, they just get so dry and I get so nervous that they're going to just die on me. And I thought to myself, you know, I've probably been overwatering these things for the last 15 years. So let's just see what happens if I, if I really back off on the watering. And so I would, you know, I mean, just the way that you water when you're trying to keep things on the dry side, it took me a long time to learn that because I don't know, my instinct is just, it's in a tiny container and you want to water it, right? Because you don't want it to, you don't want it to dry out. But in reality, it seems like with pines in general and ponderosa specifically that there's kind of a a little bit of an edge you can walk where the tree actually prefers to be on the dry side and you can push that a little bit and if you push it just the right amount it'll keep the needles from elongating quite as much during the growing season and then i would say the final factor this is a lot of factors, right? The final factor is that I only fertilize them in September, October, and November. And the rest of the year, I don't give them any fertilizer whatsoever. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. The secrets are being revealed. (laughs) And I'm on the the same wavelength as Andrew in terms of like, it scares me to not water water trees. And I haven't uh, had much experience with Ponderosa directly, like under my care. I have one at Peter's, Peter T's house, but he's actually taking care of it and we're grafting it over with black pine. Uh, but it does scare me a little bit, but I really appreciate hearing your tips. Your, your needles were very, very short and I was very impressed by that. I feel like it has also has just a lot to do with over time, you, ki- you keep increasing the number of branches on the tree and the number of needles And just the energy is distributed amongst a greater mass of needles as opposed to if you only have like six buds or you have 50 buds on the tree, the energy is spread out over a greater number of branches and needles. Yeah. I mean, when I got that tree and like I said, roughly 15 years ago, it was kind of what you would expect from a, like a typical tree that's been collected a few years prior and, and put into a container where all the branches are a little bit too long and it's, and they're kind of going upward. So only the growth on the tips is strong. So it's that process of a little bit of cutback, not too much, and then leaving all of the weaker buds alone, basically, like I just didn't, I didn't touch them and I wired branches down and that by itself seems to just sort of balance things out a little bit. But I do remember for about, probably about five years after I got that tree or for the first five years that all of the buds that now make up the kind of the center of the crown were very weak and which is kind of, you know, doesn't make sense when you think about it, but uh, they were very weak and they were very small. And then each year they would kind of pick up a little bit 
and I was trying to keep the longer outer branches contained. And then after that, like fifth year moving in, moving past that, everything just kind of evened out. And I think one of the things that I just love about Ponderosas is, is there's almost no maintenance on them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like once you, they take forever. They just absolutely take forever to get to a mature state. But once they get there, it's almost like you just, you just don't even do anything to them. Like the needles fall, you know, the old needles fall off by themselves pretty much. And, and you don't really have to cut them back because they only grow like a half an inch a year or something like that. At least in a bonsai <laughs> container. It's pretty nuts. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's interesting. And that that's a good point. And we only have so much time in the day. So I understand uh, about being okay if some of your trees don't take, you know, all that time. And it's also like if you had a hundred black pines and you had to decandle during summer, just be quite a rough short period of time. Uh, so it's nice to have some variety in your collection to spread out your time and, and nice to have some trees where you don't have to spend a million hours on them during the growing season or anything like that. I, I do have some trees that take about a million hours. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Me too. So wanted to ask you, there is, or th there's a, uh, I'm not sure if you're f familiar with conifer kingdom, but it's, uh, it's a specialty conifer nursery. I'm not sure where they're based out of, uh, but they have several varieties of ponderosa pine. And they're from, uh, mostly, I believe they were collected, they were witches' brooms. And mm -hmm. I emailed them a while back. I was just curious, like the shortest ponderosa variety, the shortest needles on a ponderosa variety that they had. And they said that it's this variety that they have called uh, Penic Pass Pincushion. Mouthful, mouthful right there. <laughs> Can't even say it. Yeah. But they have this variety and the needle size is, is much smaller than typical Ponderosa. They say it's a little less than half the size of a, a typical Ponderosa. I was just curious. Uh, this is an idea I got from Juan at, uh, when I was over at Aichien. Mm -hmm. He talked about grafting dwarf ponderosa onto ponderosa for smaller trees, like medium and smaller trees. Curious your thoughts about that. Oh, that's interesting. I, I tend to avoid those dwarf species. I don't know why. And I certainly haven't looked into dwarf ponderosa varieties, but I actually have, like the second ponderosa I have in my yard is I've had it for <laughs> probably 10 years or more. And it's like the, the opposite case where the needles have just stayed long and it doesn't ramify well. And then I lost a branch on it, I think, cause I was overwatering it. That was another reason why I backed off on the watering. And, and so there's definitely, I think, cases where grafting a different foliage type onto them would be good. And I remember, you know, going to workshops and seeing Boone grafting uh, Japanese white pine onto lodgepole, you know, collected lodgepole trunks from the Sierras and putting Japanese white pine on it and thinking to myself, 
yeah, that actually looks pretty good. But also thinking to myself, well, what's wrong with the lodgepole foliage? Like it doesn't look bad to me. And so I think, you know, if it floats your boat, give it a try. I would say, I see a lot of students show up at workshops with, with, you know, nursery material that's grafted where, you know, it's one graft that's put on to change the, you know, basically joining rootstock to a different, different needle or branch stock. And that I think people who are getting into bonsai should just avoid at all costs. There are certainly exceptions, but in almost every case, I think the graft just never works out right. But what you're talking about is grafting, like taking a nice big old trunk yep, and grafting that foliage onto the branches. So I think, you know, that very well might be a good option. Yeah, most definitely. Completely agree with you on younger stock grafted, you know, that's grafted different roots to a different type of trunk or different type of tree. I would say avoid that as well. However, yeah, what I'm talking about is probably scion grafting dwarf ponderosa onto a nice ponderosa trunk. However, I agree with you. Like Generally speaking, uh, dwarf varieties are typically not as strong as the original variety. So I don't, I have no idea if, you know, this dwarf variety is, is strong or as strong as, as the regular ponderosa pine. But if it was, I think it could be really cool. But I, I also don't like the idea that it, it may not be as strong as the, the original. And I think it makes me think of Kotobuki black pine, which is the, the variety of black pine that you don't decandle because the needles naturally stay short, more like an inch and a half to two inches by themselves. And it's interesting because when I look at these trees and I, I don't have too much experience with them, but I've seen a, you know, students bring in a few and in my mind, because I'm so used to, you know, the black pine care cycle and, and all of these things that you do in order to shorten black pine needles that simultaneously give you much better branching. It, the Kotobuki variety makes me sort of pause and think to myself like, well, I'm not supposed to decandle this, at least as far as I understand. And, and so how do you get the ramification to look as good? So it's almost like in grafting one of those dwarf varieties of Ponderosa onto a regular Ponderosa, you would be needing to pioneer all of the techniques that you then used in order to create, you know, the fine bonsai structure that you're after, because for, there's not that many people out there that even know how to make a good ponderosa bonsai, <laughs> let alone a dwarf ponderosa bonsai. For sure. Yes, no, you're 100% correct with that. And uh, definitely would take experimentation. And I, I'm not really in the, I'm not in the, the right climate to experiment with ponder with dwarf ponderosa. However, I just personally love ponderosa so much. The trunks that we get are just absolutely incredible the ones that they collect in the rocky mountains and so i think it would be cool to see a smaller needle i like the idea of a native tr- of native trees grafting you know better varieties of our native trees onto our native tr- trunks 
And so I, I would like someone to experiment. I don't necessarily want it to be me, but uh, if anyone out there wants to try it, I would I would absolutely love if you'd share the results with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I there's a lot of experimentation that that should be happening, and hopefully we can we can get people interested enough to actually delve into it to that to that depth. Sure. Anything in terms of experimentation, anything come to mind like that you would love to experiment on or anything you've been thinking about or you would love to play around with if, you know, you had a whole lot more time in the day? It It's funny because I have to stop myself from doing experiments because they can be productive. Like, so you can find new techniques, but if you're just trying to make good bonsai, if you already have a set of techniques that works, then experimentation is almost, like you say, kind of a waste of time, or it's not a waste of time, but it's not the same kind of productivity that you get from actually just sort of creating a good tree. But I do find myself kind of experimenting with things. I think right now, it one of the things that really is interesting to me because I have so many of them is those man-made shoheen size junipers that you see in Japanese shows that everybody in the U.S. seems to want and want to make, but nobody has actually figured out how to make. And the funny thing is when you, when you, for all of the people, you know, I think Adam probably has actually seen the majority of the process, but I don't think that there's very many people in the U.S. and, and no volume type growers who've actually figured out any of the techniques that have gone into that. So I find myself experimenting on those sorts of lines where it's not so much about a particular technique or, or a particular species or something like that, but really more about, well, how do I make, you know, how do I sort of sculpt this plant? Like what technique should I use to sculpt this plant? to actually make like a really compelling, uh, small composition and the junipers and black pines are the two that I, that I'm concentrating on right now, but I would really like to see a lot more, you know, variety in terms of species and people doing that kind of thing with other species. There's so many great species of trees out there to work with. I think, did you mention on one of the other episodes working with Styrax? Um, I haven't worked with Styrax very much, actually. I, I would like to, but I have not. Yeah. It's, I think Dylan got me into it. And Japanese Styrax is just That's a beautiful plant. Snowbell? Is that yeah. the... Okay, yeah. got it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Very beautiful. Most definitely. Cool. Yeah, going back to the man-made... Uh, Yamadori looking junipers. Um, I I'm growing quite a few of those and have, ha I just have so much fun with them. It's just so fun to wire them up, twist them all up, bend them, compress them. And I feel like, uh, adding Shari every year or every other year is really rewarding to see. And you get kind of like a, a step up in terms of the deadwood so there'll be, uh, and it also, it makes the, the, uh, the tree trunk grow more like a, a blade. You know what I'm saying? Like, especially if you put 
shari on both sides. So yeah, it starts like a, growing a ribbon shape instead of a, instead of a sausage shape. Hundred <laughs> percent. Yes, those are super fun. I I really enjoy growing those. One thing I kind of debate, and a little bit with junipers, but with other trees like deciduous and broadleaf evergreen as well, is if you want really small leaves, should you be growing a trunk with the standard variety and then gr- grafting on? A dwarf variety is kind of like what we we're talking about with the ponderosa, but you know, for example, let's say you wanted to go with liquid amber. Would you grow a trunk with standard liquid amber and then graft the orientalis smaller leaf variety branches on there? Would that be a better long-term way to do it or not? And then I guess it depends on, are you going for a large bonsai or are you going for medium, small? I debate that all the time in my mind with those junipers. Should, should we be just picking the fastest growing juniper, twisting that up, growing it out and then grafting Kishu and Itoigawa on it? Is that a faster process to get to the end result or would it, is it faster to just start with the Itoigawa? Just fun questions. I like to mess around with in my mind. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's, there's, I think this is the reason why it's so hard to figure out how to make something like that. Because even if you're not just thinking about the shape of the plant, in the end, there's all of these other techniques that you could be using. And I think to your point about using one variety to grow the trunk and then grafting on other foliage, whether that's a conifer or something like a maple or something, you know, anything, the I find like for whatever reason, it makes absolutely no sense. I should be able to grow them. I find trident maples to just be really frustrating. And I st- I've started a bunch from seed and I collected the seed from just like a street tree in San Francisco because I've had really bad luck with commercial seed off the internet. And so I, I start up these, these batches of trident maples and every single one of them has different leaf types. And inevitably the one that you grow out and that the trunk that you like the most ends up being like the worst leaf type. And so then you have to ask yourself like, okay, you know, do I want to graft on a different type of of foliage onto here so that I can actually both have a beautiful trunk and beautiful leaves. And I don't know. I mean, I have an exposed root trident probably the only trident that I'll keep for the long term that I've grown myself. And as I, this is what's causing this story because basically the leaves are atrocious. The petioles are twice or four times the length of a normal trident and the leaves kind of just dangle. Like they don't actually, it looks like it's wilted all the time. Yeah. So like, it's that kind of problem that you know grafting could overcome but i think you know for that particular tree if i wanted to overcome it one i would have to find you know a good trident and i was actually up at peter's and i said peter if you have any tridents that you think that they're just the bee's knees of foliage please (laughs) save me some cuttings and i'll start propagating them so that everybody can use good trident foliage because it's not just junipers or pines that are the problem you know for every species there's genetic variation that causes 
some particular specimens to be more workable than others. So I, I'm staring out my window as we're talking at a, I collected some up at Jim Gremmel's place. He has like all these landscape, like big landscape size Japanese maples. And I was up there in the fall one time and I just picked some seeds off and started growing them. And I picked the seeds off of a, a rough bark for, tree in the landscape, which I think was a grafted one. And about half of them have really good bark and the other half are just sort of like not very interesting. And it's those kinds of things. So like, should I go and start, you know, grafting better foliage onto those? But I find that the bark differences, particularly in Japanese maples, but in other things as well. So you know, with an Etoy Gala that is grafted to a San Jose trunk, assuming you're not brushing the lifeline, you're always going to see that bark difference in the junction. Yeah. And with a maple, you kind of can't overcome it because there's almost inevitably a difference at the at the graft union, no matter how good the union is, you still see a, a color difference or a texture difference in the bark. And so... I think if you do the graphs out on the on the branches, it's less obvious, but it just sort of depends on what you're after. I mean, speaking of Jim, I, I remember at a BIB meeting, he brought in a Utah juniper trunk that he had grafted with Itoigawa, I believe. And it was that same issue. He had brushed the lifeline, but it still didn't look right. Hmm. So these are complicated questions. I, I don't, we could, we could, we could spend the whole podcast just talking about grafting. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No fun questions though. I like, I like thinking about this type of thing and it is complicated and also like very, very hard to actually get the stock that you should be grafting with, like with your trident, for example, like finding a small leaf, small inner node type of trident is not, like super easy, even in the US, I feel like. I went over to a client's house and he had this trident and I was like, would you let that dry out or something? He's like, no, that's a variety. Ah. Like, Why would anybody want a variety of trident where the leaves curl the opposite direction and dangle? Like I, the, the American nursery industry sometimes just completely <laughs> baffles me. I, I can't figure it out. Yeah. Yikes. Yikes. It looked like Actually. it was. It looked like it was wilted or dried up or something. <laughs> yeah, not not too into that. Cool. Um. Awesome. Well, where should we go from here? Uh, would love to know a little bit more about your farm. Is that what you usually refer to it as? Your growing operation. Yeah, it's. So I mean the. the the problem of having space to grow things in the core Bay area is, is a real struggle. And it's kind of funny when I was starting, when I was starting up, I was just kind of thinking to myself like, well, maybe I can just like rent a greenhouse or something like that. And then I started looking around and I managed to find a greenhouse to lease, which is actually here in the city. And it used to be an orchid facility or, Parts of it are still an orchid facility, but the guy sort of semi-retired and now he 
leases out other parts of the facility to people, almost like a plant business incubator. It's pretty cool. And so I used that for more propagation, but then I needed outdoor space because a lot of the trees, you know, you can grow them inside for in a greenhouse for a while, but then the foliage looks different. And so I ended up looking for property in the East Bay because I was kind of like looking, it's, it's an interesting thing when you're looking for property to use for growing plants. It's a combination of how, what is the weather like and how flat is the land and how good is the water and how much water is available. Those seem to be like kind of the three major things that you have to think about. And if the water is no good, then you're going to have to do RO, which is really expensive on a large scale. And if the weather is too cold, then your plants are not going to grow and you're going to need a greenhouse. And so these were the kinds of things that I was thinking of. And I ended up uh, getting a, a small, I shouldn't say small, it's like two residential lots that are right next to each other um, in El Sobrante, which is kind of on the, if you're familiar with the Bay Area, but don't know where that is. <clears throat> if you're in Berkeley and you kind of hike up to the top of the ridge and then go back down the other side, it, there's uh, a San Pablo Dam Reservoir. And so it's right near there. And so it's a little bit warmer, but it still gets some of that fog influence from, from the, the onshore wind in the afternoons. And I was just looking for a place that had a lot of sun. So it's basically thousands of tiny little trees and not very many big ones. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what, um, what stage are, are you is kind of your long-term plan? Is it mostly to sell really young stock or do you want to actually grow trunks and like significant trunks and sell significant trunks at some point, or, or do you want to sell refined bonsai? What are your thoughts there? I think it's a, it's kind of a mix I, I want to, I mean, ever since I was a beginner, I had just a incredible amount of admiration for what Jim Gremmel was doing as a grower, but I find, like I said about the collecting, I, I don't find digging things out of the ground to be a particularly enjoyable process, but unlike collecting in the mountains, uh, you can use a tractor to dig things out when you have your own land. And so I, I have a tractor that I use to move dirt around and that kind of thing, but it's about, it's a mix of things. I'm not ground growing that many things, but what I do do is allow things to escape root. So most of the stock that I'm growing is still only in its fourth year, third or well, fourth year or less, because I started in 2019 in earnest in terms of propagation. And so the the kind of gist of the business is to sell starter material because there's a there's always a demand for beginners and and even people who have been doing it for longer to have material just raw material so for example you want to graft a collected juniper with kishu you have to get that kishu from somewhere uh, so we sell grafting grafting stock and we also sell you know just starters and whatnot um but i actually don't 
beyond the sourcing of the genetics and making sure that the plants are being propagated and grown in a way that is friendly to use as a bonsai, um, the, the whole propagation is really more of a means to an end, which is to kind of get up there and make some better trees. So it was it took me about 15 years to make the first batch of good shoheen Japanese black pine that I made. And so I figure it's going to take me 10 to 15 years to crank out batches of, of material. Now, there starts to be sort of this not enough hours in the day to actually create thousands of of trees but i concentrate mostly on growing stuff to about shoheen size because from a business perspective it's hard to ship large things especially if i'm selling something to someone in virginia or something like that so i'm growing out trunks to be you know, shoheen or, or maybe kifu, like up to 10, 12 inches in some cases. And growing the trunks and creating like kind of that good basis for a tree with all of the branches kind of started and no big like scars or bad structural issues is sort of in volume, at least about as far as I think you can go. So you can... You can take trees further than that in a nursery operation, but the problem because becomes that each one of those trees starts to take exponentially more time. You know, you, you start off ramifying a black pine and you've got two branches and then the next year, four and eight and so on. And so when you multiply, instead of starting with one pine with two branches, that you have a thousand pines with two branches, <laughs> then you have 2000 branches then you have 4,000 branches, 8,000 and so on. The amount of time just gets completely off the charts. Like I, I think I have about maybe 1,500 Japanese black pine in roughly one gallon uh, pond baskets. And they're in their fourth growing season and they're all sort of like lined up in rows and they were starting to shade each other too much, right? So if I'm making shohi and I want the trunk, the lower trunk to be wired, and then I'm basically leaving one sacrifice branch to grow on each one of them. Well, all of the sacrifice branches were kind of like shading out the lower growth on all of the trees next to them. So it took me, I believe it was about 10 days worth of work to go through those pines, that one batch of pines, and thin out all of the sacrifice branch growth. Jeez, it, that's, a, that's a lot of time. I, yeah, I do, it's just, you know, that's, and that would have, that has to happen kind of every year because each year the sacrifice branch grows out and you have all the side branching on the sacrifice branch that you need to kind of eliminate if you're keeping, keep, so part of it is just that if you had fewer trees, you could just sort of space them apart, but you still want to cut off the sides of the sacrifice branch so it doesn't shade out the bottom and overpower it from a hormone perspective. But yeah, the amount of time just sort of multiplies. So long-winded answer, but basically it's a mix. 
um, I take some trees further than others, and I I try to encourage people to buy starter material and start kind of from where I started when I was when Boone first started encouraging me to like propagate and, and grow out and shameless plug to that end. <laughs> I'm just about to launch a, uh, a Japanese black pine from, from seed to show tree e-course that I'm going to be doing. Um, it's coming out any day now, you know, because it's almost it's the beginning of decandling season. I figure it was a good time to launch it. Um, but the, the idea being that, if more people understand how to make good shoheen black pines, we'll have more shoheen black pines out there. So the idea, it's taken me about a year to film all the videos because you have to film them at different times of the year and, uh, and put the course together. But it, I'm hoping, hoping that it, uh, it helps people learn all the, little bits and pieces that go into those middle years between between starting a seedling and actually getting to something that looks somewhat like a somewhat like a show tree because as, as you probably know a lot of the material that's out there in terms of instruction is aimed at what you see in japan which is trees that already have a set of branches and you're not so you're reading an article and it's telling you to decandle but it's not telling you you know, what stage of development that's aimed at. So. Oh, that's, that's really exciting. I'm excited to check that, that, so it's a video course on uh, black pines that you're that you've created. Yeah. And it, it's, so it's all online. And uh, once you sign up, there's, I think there's like 27 videos. It's about three hours worth of video content, uh, very concentrated, I went through some some other video courses to try to kind of get like organization ideas and like look at things that I think that they were not getting right, and then basically started filming the videos and and then put it all together and showed it to a few people to you know I showed it to Jonas to ask him like did I miss anything that I didn't think of and then showed it to a couple of beginners like. Do you actually think that this would get you like, do you, if, if you watch all these videos, like, and it was interesting. I didn't get a lot of really detailed feedback, but I am hoping that as you know, people take the course and I do get feedback that I can improve it because I'm also the planning on what we were talking about before, you know, creating those showing junipers from scratch. If you only have a couple of junipers, you're not probably, you don't have enough options. You don't have enough material to like really experiment with things. And so I kind of feel like as a grower, as someone who has a couple thousand junipers that I'm trying to turn into that, that I'm in a not unique, but unusual position in terms of my ability to branch out and with techniques and really experiment and push things along and if someone in Japan gets to this before me, great. I'll move on to something else. But as far as I can tell, it's not out there. Totally. Totally. That's great. Yeah. I'll be your uh, first subscriber in terms of on that, that black pine series of videos that you're releasing. I'm really excited about that. So that's fantastic. Thank you. 
Awesome. Well, was curious to ask you a few questions about growing trunks, if that's okay. I don't want to. I don't want you to divulge all your secrets, but I did have a few questions that I was really curious about. If that's all right, there's no secrets. <laughs> the only the only secret is that I won't tell you the actual address of where I keep all my plants. <laughs> all right. <laughs> nice. That's that's fair enough. Sounds good. Yeah. One thing I'm curious about is. If you, and, and I know you're creating a lot of, of smaller trees, however, if you wanted to grow big trunks, you want to create large size bonsai eventually, would you, and your plan was to ground grow, would you start bonsai in pots first, maybe for a, a period of years to maybe work on the nabari and the, the roots and then transfer them into the ground after that or would you go straight into the ground yeah it's an interesting question so let me just to make it a little bit less abstract let's just use the valley oaks that i started and when i started these i was pretty pretty much a beginner and just sort of fumbling my way through it and so i went and collected the acorns and i came back and i planted a bunch of them in so i I think I had about a hundred acorns or something like that. And I planted a bunch of them into pots and started them. And, but I ran out of pots. And so I was just like, no, I'll just plant some of these in the ground in my backyard. And within, I want to say two years, a couple of the ones that I planted in the ground already had like two inch trunks. Like they just took off. It was unbelievable. And everything that was in a container was was still, you know, like a little seedling kind of size. So I think oaks are not really maybe the best example, but they are one example. The ones that I started in containers, I then went and did like root pruning work too and tried to refine the nabari and uh, eventually ended up planting those in the ground as well on top of square pieces of plywood, say probably 10 inch squares of plywood or something like that. And so I ended up with a pretty good Nabari on a few of them, but the ones that I planted in the ground that I subsequently dug up, you know, 18 years later, they actually have decent Nabari too. And it, the techniques were entirely different, but I feel like there's different ways of getting there. And it's not so much whether you ground grow it or don't ground grow it that gives you good Nabari. It's more delving into like the minutia of the details a little bit more. So I think a, one of the problems with ground growing it, especially straight off the bat, you know, acorns have a lot of energy stored up in them. It's a big seed, so it gives a good jump start to the plant. But with a lot of tree species, if you plant, if you try to be like, okay, I'm going to take this one-year-old seedling and I'm going to plant it in the ground, it's going to sit there and you're going to forget about it because it's not that big. And, and then something happens, someone steps on it or something like that. Um, so I've had a lot of problems with planting stuff that was too small in the ground and having it basically just die because it, it wasn't established enough. So I would say the typical process that I would go through is getting something to 
like kind of a one gallon size. So maybe three or four years old and then thinking about putting it in the ground. And along the way, I would say you would want to do some root work uh, to, to kind of start you in the right direction. And I actually have, I've taken stuff, young material, like say like a three-year-old maple or something like that and put it in the ground and realized, you know, so what are all the problems that happen when you put things in the ground? Well, like your nabari kind of go crazy, right? So instead of getting a nice spread of even little roots, you get like three giant roots and then you have to cut those off and it kind of affects the shape of the trunk. So with these maples, I left them in the ground for two years and I saw that those big roots were starting to form. So I, I dug them up out of the ground and I cut off all the big roots and kind of like left all the smaller ones, then put them back on top of a board and put them back in. Right. So you're losing speed so that you can kind of curate the nabari uh, a little bit better. And I think that those are the kinds of things that like, so if you think about typical ground growing operations, if you're only going for speed, and bulking in your trunk, you're probably going, you're just causing problems for yourself later or for the person who you're selling the tree to later. So the taking a little bit of extra time to curate the Nabari, to try to plan the design of the tree so that you can minimize the appearance of scarring and whatnot will will help you. And I think ground growing is a fantastic tool, but you have to think of it as a, as a tool that just like any other tool doesn't stand by itself. Like ground growing is not the solution to bonsai taking too long, anything like that. It's just a way to bulk up trunks, but you still have to think about all the, all the minutia. Yeah. hundred percent completely agree with you. And this is another very complex topic. I think there's several ways you can do it. And uh, a few points though that you were hitting on. So I, I guess personally, I like to start things in pots and it sounds like you do as well. And I like that it starts a little bit slower in a container as opposed to putting it in the ground. So you can curate those, the Nabari, <clears throat> you have more control over the Nabari in a pot. And then one, once it gets to a certain point, then transferring it over into the ground, I think that's a great way to go. That's how I like to go. I think for me, if I'm going to grow something in the ground, I want to put maybe like six years having it growing in a pot before I would transfer it into the ground just to get the Nabari kind of where I would like it. And I would like to work on it every time I repot. I think that's just a, a massive thing that a lot of people don't do when they just stick something in the ground is just not working on the nabari meaning like combing out the surface roots trimming them where appropriate cutting back the big ones and allowing the the smaller ones to grow out i feel like we just don't have have enough of that within the u.s right now i think you know there's a couple of i don't know why more people don't do it but i would encourage people to think about using raised beds sort of like you use with vegetables because 
it gives you better access to the plants. So one of the problems with ground growing is that like if your tree that you're making is only going to be like a foot tall, you literally have to be like lying on your stomach to really see the proper perspective if it's totally in the ground. So when I ground grew my valley oaks, I actually had them in raised beds that were about 16 inches tall, something like that. So I could sit with a chair in front of them and kind of like look at the structure and not have to feel so uncomfortable. So the easiest raised bed then is basically just like take a five gallon can and nestle the bottom of it into the ground and let it escape root or cut the bottom of it off uh, if you want if you want more penetration to, into the ground. So escape rooting and and using techniques that are sort of like ground growing but not full ground growing i think is kind of the answer and when you i think it was my first trip to japan with boone we actually went to ebihara's nursery and i got to see the both the ground growing aspects of what he was doing and the container growing aspects of what he was doing and he, you know, having an engineering background, obviously just had a very analytical mind and, and really thought about things from a results kind of perspective. Like, what do I have to do to get from here to there? And in bonsai, I think that it's funny, maybe it's confirmation bias, but I, I really do think that there's a lot of former engineers and scientists that end up making really good bonsai because they have that kind of analytical thinking and then they they tap into the artistic side of their brain just a little bit but they're so good at that sort of process design that that they like jim jim was an aerospace engineer before he became a bonsai grower and there was some pottery in there in the middle but but yeah so so back to Evihara's the he was ground growing but he was ground growing in a raised bed and his raised beds were like just like a ring of cinder blocks essentially and he had the trees in those raised beds on top of boards and then he would put on the top of the board there was like it was almost like like a little two inch tall fence of drainage mesh in a ring around it and he would fill he would put pumice underneath the tree and then 100 percent akadama in that ring so he's trying to create root division in the ring right around the base of the trunk while simultaneously allowing big roots to go slightly down and under those roots. And then he was kind of doing this similar type of technique on the top where he would wire the trunk to create the shape that he wanted in the trunk, but then he would keep certain branches that were the finished branches completely wired out and trimmed back while allowing sacrifice branches from very specific places to just go completely crazy to bulk up the trunk. So it's like this best of both worlds where you're getting the speed of the growth that you want, but you're not causing all of those problems that we see from ground grown materials so frequently. So it, I think ground growing and 
and or escape routing is by far a superior technique in the sense that speed is important. You know, trees live so much longer than we do that you're just never going to, you're never going to get there if you don't use some sort of a trick. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so interesting. I uh, never knew that. He's, ah, he's the guy that's it, kind it, of famous it. for the, for the maples um, in Japan. And he was the guy that chopped off the top of a finished maple, removed like an inch of it and grafted it back on. Makes sense. And uh, yeah, his techniques are absolutely incredible. He really pushed the limit in several different aspects of bonsai and that, and he is, he's absolutely incredible. So that's great. Yeah. It was crazy to see it. It was crazy. Ah, you're lucky that you got to see that. One thing I wanted to uh, go back to was just talking about the escape escape root method. So allowing roots to go outside of the drainage holes or in a colander, just escape outside of the container. So I actually started utilizing that technique and I really like it to speed up growth. One thing that I found though is that there's definitely a balance there. So I actually have really sandy soil where I live and things grow really well and really fast in the sandy native soil that I have. So I made the mistake of, I had a, <laughs> a tree in an Anderson flat, nice Nabari. And I started doing the escape method, escape root method with that tree. However, I left it there too long. Like I was just like, Oh, it's, it's doing great. It's growing like crazy. And what happened was the tree just started, the roots below the Anderson flats just went like crazy, like gangbusters just grew super, super fast, super thick. And it kind of abandoned the roots in the Anderson flat, or maybe not abandoned those, but it put all root production below the Anderson flat. So when I dug it up, it was really hard because I, I had to cut off all the, the fast growing roots below the Anderson flat, which was like, 75% of the root mass now. That's what I'm guessing. And then there was just a, a small amount of roots left over in the Anderson flat. And this tree actually ended up dying because I, I think, cause I just cut so many roots off and it, it basically like abandoned the roots that were in the Anderson flat. So I do feel like there's a balance there. And I've, I've kind of started tending to, if I'm going to use the escape method, instead of letting the roots dive into my native soil, I put it all just on another pot, maybe filled with mm. pumice or something like that. And that also has the advantage that I can move it. Yep. What was the species? Uh, this was actually a Chinese quince. Huh. And so, and I, I way overdid it. I left it there for too long. I think it, it would have been, you know, if I left it there one year, I think it'd been fine, but I, it was it was too long, probably like three years. Yeah. So I find Chinese quince to be pretty water sensitive. So I'm guessing that like it having gotten into the ground that it was relying more on, well, I mean, as you said, relying more on the roots that were in the ground. But, you know, <clears throat> I've actually done that same thing a couple of times. And I agree with you. I don't think that the, I don't think an, in particular an Anderson flat 
because they're relatively shallow, they can dry out pretty quickly. If you're going to use an Anderson flat, I would probably put it on top of something else. And then if you want to actually like full on escape route into the ground, maybe, maybe, you know, put the Anderson flat on top of something else that is a big container, which actually I can't even think of a container that would be big enough to put an Anderson flat on top of. (laughs) they're (laughs) So they're so kind of wide and shallow, but, but yeah. And then let it escape. Like, so say you put it on top of a, 15 gallon can or something like that. And then, and then after a year or two, you let it escape right out of the 15 gallon can. I think that the problem that you ran into, it is, it's just sort of like, just like a ground growing problem, right? So you get these, you get the roots going too strong and you leave it kind of too long because you're like, oh, maybe I'll let the trunk get a little bit bigger or I don't have time to dig it out this winter. I'll dig it out next winter or something like that. Um, it is kind of one of the dangers of, of escape rooting and ground growing. And I think, you know, trees want to be trees. So you got to watch the speed. And I would say I have actually in that exact configuration, I took a black pine root of a rock that I've been developing and it was in an Anderson flat and I stuck the flat on the ground and escape rooted into the ground. And I left it there for two years and it had kind of at least half a dozen half inch thick roots down into the ground. And when I cut it off, it didn't, it didn't die thankfully, but it was definitely relying on those roots quite a bit. And so it's very slow growing this year. And that would be the type of thing that I would try to avoid. I've also, there's a, you know, there's almost an infinite number of variations of this technique, but I use, I grow a lot of those junipers in three and a half inch containers. And I found like, well, they're just really not growing very fast. And I don't have enough room to put them all into one gallon containers or bigger. So I started putting the three inch containers on top of an inch of soil in an Anderson flat and letting the roots escape out of the three inch containers. So it's like five by five in an Anderson flat, 25 plants total. And then, and I thought, well, now they're growing twice as fast. This is fantastic. And then I had to take them out to like wire them and unwire them. And I had to cut all of those roots off. And I did it right before heat wave and half of them just kind of got fried because I had taken off a bunch of the roots because I was having to pull them apart. So none of these techniques are perfect. It's sort of like they, they have their ups and downs and pluses and minuses. Totally. Totally. Makes total sense. <clears throat> and yeah, I think, uh, I think that finding the right balance with all these techniques is what we're looking for. And for example, with escape rooting or with growing trees in the ground, I think at a certain point you should dig them up and work on the roots on somewhat of a regular basis, Uh, as opposed to you can't just put them in the ground or let them escape root forever (laughs) and then think you're going to have a nice tree with nice nabari. I think it just doesn't work like that. You have to dig them up every once in a while, every few years or so and work on the nabari and reassess 
and not let them get too crazy and out of balance and lose your whole balance with the tree. I tend to dig them up like two every two, three years. Nice. Which is just more labor or more work. Like, but you know, like you said, if you don't do it, then you're sort of things are getting out of whack and you have other problems. So. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, Hey, uh, so we are on the timer on the, uh, podcast. I think we're at about a, an hour and 50 minutes. And, uh, originally when I sent you over the questions, you were like, you, you sent over way too many questions. And I, I was like, did I, but I totally <laughs> did. <laughs> And so I think we'll have to save the uh, Pacific Bonsai Expo stuff for a later date, if that's cool. Yeah. And I apologize. This has been kind of all over the place. I Just things that I am naturally curious about, I just kind of go off. And I, I saw, I've really enjoyed it. I really enjoy talking to you, listening to you. I kind of have like one more question that I wanted your opinion on. Super random. But uh, just another topic that uh, that fascinates me personally and something I've been thinking about lately, if you don't mind. Sure. Which is, what do you think about, you're going to be like, this is so random, Jeremiah. <laughs> Redwood, Deadwood. How, w- what do you like to treat it with? So basically, I think that with, say, junipers and with a lot of other types of trees we have models from japan right we can see what they do at the kokufu show and things like that with red redwoods we we don't have that so i was just curious uh your thoughts on how how you treat it what you like to see with redwood deadwood so it's interesting because i think that when i think about the way that japanese bonsai growers treat juniper deadwood with lime sulfur, I see that sort of natural bleaching when I go hiking in the mountains in the, in the wood, just by exposure to the sun and wind and that kind of thing. And so I think that the using lime sulfur to treat dead wood, I don't really think it provides that much of a preservative effect, but I do appreciate the the contrast that it creates between the deadwood and the lifeline. But I also think that that is sort of a uniquely juniper kind of thing because deadwood on pine trees doesn't look the same. And in the same vein, deadwood on redwoods does not look the same. So if you go to, you know, into a redwood grove and you find a tree that has a a hollowed out trunk or, a split top or a dead branch or something like that, it's very unlikely that the wood will be a bleached white color or even in milled redwood tends to weather to either like a medium gray, depends on the conditions, but it can be like a medium gray or something like that. I think with the collected trees that there's always a lot of really interesting character to the deadwood. But I would say that the best thing that what I do and what I would suggest other people do is basically don't don't let <laughs> well, don't let moss and algae and lichen kind of take over the deadwood because that can cause it to rot. But I tend to 
just use like one of those little spot pressure guns to wash that kind of dirt and stuff off of it. And other than that, I pretty much don't do anything to it. I just leave it natural. And even that means that sometimes the deadwood actually is a little bit greenish or something like that, or there's bits of moss somewhere. And I just kind of think of that as the way that redwood, redwood deadwood uh, looks. And I think, you know, if you, if you think about some of the compositions that Michael Hagedorn has been doing with natives from Oregon and whatnot, nurse logs and deadwood on fine maples and that kind of thing, he's subscribing to that same idea. Uh, So yeah, that's, I think to always like to me, always looking to like, well, what does this look like if I go for a hike? That's kind of, that's usually the answer and the thing that I tend to follow. I think that's a great way to think about it. Most definitely. Yeah. And I, I, like I said before, it's not something that we have a, a model to look at just in terms of if we're using Japanese professional bonsai as a model. Not that we need to or that we should be necessarily, but we don't have that. Whereas with junipers, we do. And uh, for me, I guess I've kind of gone back and forth and I've been experimenting with redwood, deadwood. (laughs) Uh, And at first I was experimenting with burning it because I, I think that with the redwoods, especially within California, we see a lot of fire damage naturally occurring on redwoods. But I didn't like it all that much. I don't, I, it didn't come out how I anticipated. Um, it was too dark, obviously with the black. I think that it could be good if you did it maybe on like a portion or, or something like that. But I haven't found out how to do that properly for myself. Uh, I also experimented with lime sulfur and I think I just used too much. So I ended up cleaning the lime sulfur lime sulfur and uh charred black off all my redwoods and it's pretty much just like natural bare wood and i'm just letting that naturally age but i'm cleaning off the algae kind of like you recommend so i think we're pretty much on the same page page there with redwood deadwood (laughs) (laughs) yeah no i mean some of the some of the stumps are absolutely beautiful in terms of like the natural graining and whatnot that comes out from you know in the Yamadori, just like collected junipers have really beautiful natural deadwood. So I think keeping it as natural as possible is usually usually a good thing. Yeah. Solid. Solid. Well, hey, Eric, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Always enjoy talking to you. I think you're doing really phenomenal philanthropic type work for the bonsai community and the pacific bonsai expo was so so awesome Uh, it was just the greatest weekend i could have ever asked for uh love following your videos and uh i'm excited for your new pine course so i'll definitely be uh one of your first subscribers there but just wanted to thank you so much for your time hope we can talk again soon there's anything I can help you out with or, you know, be a resource for you in the future, please let me know. Uh, Other than that, really appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you too.